two songs that I've been uh, listening to today. Last week we uh, began with a, a verse that says that in the end times, because of the increase of wickedness, our love for one another will grow cold. And obviously as followers of Jesus, that's exactly the opposite kinds of lives that we want to live. And so that means in our lives, we, uh, we need to resist the temptation to getting involved in factions and divisions and controversies and all this stuff that seems to be happening today. We need to be people who love one another and encourage one another. And that's what this series is about. It's about encouragement. And uh, today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18, as we focus again on Jonathan, the son of uh, King Saul. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is so encouraging to us. It's just amazing how uh, looking at your word, reading it, thinking about it, meditating on it, internalizing it, just lifts our heads downcast. And so, Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we followed the crown prince, Jonathan, heir to the throne of Israel, staggering through a forest during a fierce battle. The young prince was utterly exhausted, drained of energy, until he found the remains of a hive when he tasted the honey, it says his eyes brightened. And to me, that's an illustration of the power of encouragement. And that was Jonathan's specialty. Through his actions and his words, Jonathan's encouragement impacted so many lives. For example, last week we saw how demoralized the Hebrew army was as they were facing the overwhelming odds overconfidence, uncircumvented Philistines. Israel was discouraged and on the defensive. And then Jonathan unexpectedly went on the offense and committed a defiant act of faith based on the conviction that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Chapter 14, verse 6. And so with his armor bearer, he attacked an enemy outpost, and he captured it. And this so surprised the enemy that they panicked, and it turned into chaos. And Saul's army gained the momentum, and Jonathan's bold act of faith encouraged his fearful soldiers, and it turned the tide of the battle and transformed defeat into victory. Now where did Jonathan get this courageous spirit? Well, it certainly wasn't from his father. King Saul was insecure, neurotic, manic, depressive, unstable, cowardly. He was tormented by self-doubt and worried about what other people think. Now, for me, that's just an average week. For Jonathan, this was not about 23 and me, like father, like son. Jonathan's excellent character displayed the signs of a master craftsman. His heart and soul were fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Jonathan's best qualities were the result of his relationship with his heavenly father. That's why his spirit wasn't contaminated by the gloom and the pessimism of his earthly father. Never use your parents' weaknesses as an excuse for your own moral failures. Use them as a motivation to pursue excellence. So Jonathan was his own man. He was God's man, noble and splendid, destined to become a great king. But it became complicated when a rival appeared on the scene. In chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, the Israeli army is once again on the defensive and very discouraged because this time the Philistines had unveiled a weapon of mass destruction. A giant named Goliath who stood over nine feet tall. And he had all the armor that Pastor Ryan's been talking about in his series on Ephesians 6. It says his spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Who knows, he might have even had all six infinity stones. Talk about intimidating. Goliath was larger than life. He looked even bigger than God. And so Saul's army was discouraged, especially when this big bully issued a challenge and said, let's keep this simple. We don't need another bloodbath. Let's make it mano a mano. Send out your best warrior and I'll fight him. And to the victor go the spoils. Nobody else needs to get hurt. It was a reasonable offer. The only problem was that the Israelis didn't have any soldiers in his shoe size. You can't put a flyweight contender in the ring with a heavyweight champion. Now, if anybody should have taken up the challenge, it was Saul. Physically, he was the tallest, most impressive, and maybe most experienced fighter Israel had. But Saul slumped down in fear, and the whole army was dismayed and terrified. And not even Jonathan rose to the challenge. And that's when David, the shepherd boy, showed up. And the rest is history. It was now time for some downsizing. The autopsy report indicated that without his head, Jonathan's corpse was somewhere in the realm of NBA numbers, no more than about seven and a half feet. Inspired by his faith in God, David had cut the giant down to size. And the Hebrew soldiers again were so encouraged and uplifted that they pursued the fleeing enemy and won a great victory. And so once again, the balance of power in the Middle East had shifted in Israel's favor. And everyone was affected by David's dramatic, defiant act of faith. Especially Saul and Jonathan. Although King Saul honored David, his insecurity system was triggered by this intruder. This new kid was a potential rival. I have to keep my eye on him and make sure this doesn't get out of hand. And what about Jonathan? He could have been jealous. The prince was the, the most respected, most admired man in the nation, the most popular. Would this 
David now get the spotlight? Will they just forget about me? This wouldn't be easy for Jonathan. These kinds of transitions are a big challenge. Especially, we see that in sports. An athlete sets a new record and basks in the acclaim until another comes along and shatters his achievements. It wasn't easy for Drew Bledsoe to step back and let that kid, Tom Brady, quarterback the team and then sit on the bench watching Brady winning Super Bowl after Super Bowl. It should have been me. How would Jonathan react to this new kid in town? Well, I think here is where we see his character at its best. When Jonathan saw David topple Goliath, he didn't get jealous. His eyes brightened. He was so encouraged and energized. And his faith grew three sizes that day. Because Jonathan recognized that David was anointed by God. And Jonathan decided that his mission in life was to do whatever was necessary to ensure David's success. Can you imagine that? Putting yourself aside, putting your hopes and dreams aside for the sake of somebody else? See, Jonathan was in love in the best sense of the word. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. This was the beginning of a great friendship, probably the best example in the Old Testament, which raises the question, whatever happened to, to friendships, real, loving friendships? I don't know, but who's got the time, right? It's very difficult to maintain a deep, meaningful relationship in the busy pace of modern life. And, and this pandemic has even made it worse. Sure, we have a lot of acquaintances. We have colleagues and clients and contacts and consultants and customers and mentors and personal trainers and pr professional caregivers. We have parole officers. But do we have any real friends? Because without that, we will have interactions without real intimacy. We'll carry on conversations without communion. We'll offer friendliness, but not friendship. The relationship that David had with Jonathan was actually much closer than anything David had within his own family, even his older brothers. In fact, when he showed up at the camp, they asked, what are you doing here? You should be watching the sheep. Why have you come? The closest relationships we have are often not necessarily within our families, but they are with the friends that God brings into our lives. It's biblical. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Remember when we used to brag, you know, I've got so many friends on Facebook or so many followers on Twitter. 
But it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And this relationship was of the highest quality. Jonathan and David became best friends. Not because they had a lot in common, like season's tickets to the flames, section Z, row 999. Not because they liked the same pizza, salami with whipped cream. Not because they disliked the same people. That Trudeau's got to go. There was not that much in common. Do you like sheep? Not really. Are you good with a slingshot? I prefer a spear. Not a lot in common. Jonathan was from the royal family, first in line to the throne. David was the youngest from a peasant family last in line for the leftovers. But they became friends because of something uncommon, an exceptional faith in God, the God who enabled them to perform heroic exploits. And that's the DNA of the best relationships. In this friendship, it would be iron sharpening iron. It would be two men encouraging each other, sp spurring each other on to love and good deeds. They would bring out the best in each other. And this is the most important part. It didn't matter who got the credit or who came out on top. It didn't matter. True friendship is when their success makes you just as happy as your own success. You know people like that? You see, you can't be jealous of someone you love as much as you love yourself. It's impossible because you can't be jealous of yourself unless you have a multiple personality disorder. In verse 2, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. True friendship is based on a covenant. It's a relationship with you based on our relationship with God. And it's God's love that becomes the preservative in our most important friendships. And that also happens in our families and especially in marriage. You see, marriage is not meant to be a contract with prenuptial agreements and escape clauses. Marriage is not a contract or a warranty, good for five years or 50,000 arguments, whichever comes first. There's no expiry date. It's, it's not best till divorce do you part. A covenant with God is from here to eternity. It's to infinity and beyond. The new covenant God made with us through the death of Jesus Christ cannot be broken. We still celebrate it today as we are going to do later in communion. In a world of disposable relationships, temporary commitments, and starter marriages, God's covenant is permanent and eternal. And the best relationships take place within the context of that covenant. Where there is no fear of rejection, because perfect love drives out all fear, we are going the distance 
And that's a tremendous encouragement to be in a relationship like that. Verse 4 says, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Verse 4 says, Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. You see, this was a public declaration of honor and respect to David. Jonathan was raising this insignificant shepherd to a status equal with the prince of Israel. What an encouragement that was to the new guy. And then David gave Jonathan his slingshot and his rock collection and a nice woolen sweater. Well, not exactly. It doesn't say that David gave Jonathan anything. He didn't reciprocate because in friendships, one will often have more to share than the other. From a materialistic perspective, this wasn't a 50-50 relationship. It wasn't mathematically symmetrical. A lot of the relationships we have are kind of the typical Old Testament caliber, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's an IOU relationship. If you invite me, then I have to invite you back. And it becomes a social duty. I owe you a favor. Well, for me, that's just too rigid. I can't remember who I owe favors to. I just receive them in gratefulness and kind of forget about it. I like something more spontaneous. Because with friends, you don't keep score. It seems that Jonathan actually did most of the giving in this relationship. David, David was almost always on the receiving end. Because when you love someone, you can't give them enough. In fact, the very act of giving enriches your life. On rare occasions, I've had friends who admired something I possessed. And eventually, I just gave it to them. If I kept it, I'd still be enjoying it. But now I can enjoy imagining how much they're appreciating it. By the way, I saw a car in the parking lot this morning that I could really use. My van is rusting apart. I'm just saying, Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan was doing for David what Jesus did for us emptying himself and enriching us and thereby forever changing our eternal credit rating. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David couldn't wear Saul's armor because it didn't fit well. It was very uncomfortable. But Jonathan's robe was a perfect fit. So David now had status and that brought new opportunities. Verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. That pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. And David's success made Jonathan happy. There was no jealousy. On the other hand, every person that you love less than you love yourself could be a potential threat 
David made Saul's insecurity flare up, especially when a new song debuted number one on the Billboard charts. Verse 6, when the men were returning home after David killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Shaboom, shaboom. I mean, this song was going viral. It was starting a new dance craze. And as we saw last week, Saul was all about the numbers. So this mass was giving him a migraine. Saul has slain his thousands. And David is tens of thousands. It says Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. You know, if the song had just been, Saul has slain his thousands, that would have been fine, right? Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your support. I don't want to brag, but some say I'm the greatest king Israel ever had. There's no problem with Saul has slain his thousands. That could have been a world record. It's when those uh, mail-in ballots came in and were counted. And the final total was that David has slain tens of thousands. That's when Saul's ego suffered a mortal wound. And there was massive internal bleeding. Ten thousand? Are they saying David is ten thousand times or ten times better than me? That algorithm triggered Saul's Darwinian instinct because Saul loved David less than himself. The rookie had become a rival. And from here on in, it would be survival of the fittest. You know what Saul could have said? He could have said, how about that, David? Together, we've slain 11,000. We make a great team. Saul could have encouraged David, made him the employee of the month. Thank you for all you've done for ma in making Israel great again. But Saul was too self-centered to share the spotlight. This kingdom isn't big enough for the both of us. The only question is, who will be the last man standing? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. What about Jonathan? That song didn't even mention him. They've already forgotten all about me. At least they could have done is given me a verse. Saul has slain his thousands. David, tens of thousands. Jonathan has slain his hundreds. I mean, give me some credit. You know, if that David was out of the way, Jonathan could reclaim the title of Palestinian idol. Chapter 19, verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. Jonathan was a true friend. 
Jonathan was not an alpha male trying to protect his territory. It's amazing, you know, these two men did not have that much in common. Jonathan from the royal family, first in line to the throne. David from a peasant's family, last in line for the leftovers. What created their bond was their faith in a God who could do the impossible. Even in the face of overwhelming odds, they had become soulmates. And looking forward, whatever greatness David would achieve was in a large part because he had a friend who loved him as much as he loved himself. There's no greater encouragement than that. So, do you have a friend like that? If not, could you be a friend like that? Maybe that's what we need to work on. And above all, let's not forget what Jesus said. In John 15, verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. What kind of a relationship does Jesus want with us? There's many ways to answer that. There's many different kinds of relationships people have with Jesus. Servants. Many want to be servants, and that's a great relationship. But above all, what Jesus is looking for is something more than that. He's looking for friends. So maybe it's time to upgrade our relationship with Jesus. Perhaps up to now you've been a reliable, hard-working servant, like Martha, Martha. Well done. As important as that is, Jesus offers us something more. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. This verse says a servant doesn't know. They're too busy. They don't have time. But a friend is somebody who knows because it's revealed to them. Servants are focused on their responsibilities. They're busy people. They're always in a hurry. And one thing I've noticed, busy people don't make good friends. They don't have time. A friend is essentially someone who is not in a hurry. A friend is someone who has time, time to listen. And when you find someone like that, you can tell them anything. What an encouragement that is. And that's what Jesus is looking for. Friends, so that he can tell them everything. Let me tell you about uh, my roommate. Reminds me of my roommate. You see, I live in a haunted house. I'm not talking about the little bungalow over in Arbor Lake. I'm referring to my inner life, my heart, mind, and, and soul. I live in a haunted house, haunted in the best sense of the word, because my roommate is the ghost, the Holy Ghost. He sleeps on the couch. 
And usually I get up first. And when I do, I find myself in a room of mirrors all around me. Everywhere I look, I see my reflection. And I can spend lots of time looking into those mirrors and either admiring myself or despising myself depending on my mood. Either way, it's all about me. And that's just like Saul. But when the Holy Spirit wakes up, it's like HGTV. There's renovations going on. Because what he does, he may leave one mirror up, but he replaces all of the other mirrors with windows so that I can look out, so that I can see my neighbors, the people who need my encouragement, the people who I can love as much as I love myself. I would never have noticed them if the Holy Spirit had not removed the mirrors. See, the problem with mirrors is that they don't let in any fresh air. And after a while, most of the oxygen is used up. Self-centeredness is a very unhealthy and stifling existence. And after a while, you lose touch with reality, just like Saul did. But when you have windows, you can open them and let some fresh air in. And it's so invigorating. This illustration, incidentally, is brought to you by Microsoft Windows 10. See, Jonathan was not admiring his own reflection. Jonathan was able to see a young man who was anointed by God, who had gone further in his faith than he himself had. And he said, whatever my life consists of, I have to get to know him. I have to become friends with him. If he's closer to God than I am, then I have to make him my friend so I can get closer to God through him. Jonathan saw a young man who was godly, anointed by God, and that's who I want to spend time with. He's the one who is going to encourage me to develop a closer relationship with God, and I will encourage him and give him every opportunity to succeed. And that's the kind of relationship Jesus offers us. He calls us to be his friends because what Jesus wants more than anything else in the world, more than anything, is for us to succeed spiritually. That's what he wants more than anything else. He's, he doesn't want to hold us down or hold us back. He doesn't want to eliminate our opportunities. He wants to give us everything that we need. To, see our, to realize our potential. And so he calls us to be friends. And in that friendship, he can trust us. And he can tell us everything. And through the Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth. Because it's amazing what you can see when the mirrors are replaced by windows. I no longer call you servants, 
the servant does not know. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. What a privilege to have a friend like that. What a privilege. And it all began because of what happened on the cross. That's what made it possible. Jesus dying for us, paying for our sins, so that we could have our relationship with him. Not just as servants, but as friends. So that he could trust us and share everything with us and take everything that he had and give it to us, enriching our lives again and again and again until we have as much as he has. That's what it's all about, and that's what communion reminds us of. So let's pray, and then we'll go into the uh, communion part of the service. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the way that you have removed the mirrors and replaced them with windows. Thank you that through them we can see other people who need us, who need our encouragement. And thank you that through them we can see glimpses of glory. We can set our hearts and minds on things above through that skylight that shows us and reminds us that a friend is watching us, that he loves us so much he simply can't take his eyes off of us. Lord, thank you for the cross and how this all began because of your great love. Pray this in Jesus' name.